Good morning. Glad you could join us for worship this morning. If you have a Bible, go ahead and uh, grab that. We're going to be looking at God's Word for the majority of our time here this morning. Well, I know I've shared this before in the past, uh, but did you know that the United States once had a king? Believe it or not, it's true. At least it was true in the rather confusing and confused mind of Joshua A. Norton. Norton lived in San Francisco during the gold rush days of the 1800s, and he was quite a colorful character. When speculation in the rice market brought him to financial ruin, something happened in Norton's mind. He declared himself king of these United States. It might have been a practical joke or maybe a result of a clouded mind. Whatever the the reason is, Norton's pretending soon grew into a full-blown delusion. In 1859, he published a proclamation that he was king according to the act of the California legislature. He found a sword, stuck a feather in his hat, found a cape, and marched through the streets in costume. And the citizens of San Francisco were amused by this ploy and so played the game with him. They gave him recognition with free tickets to special events. He was invited to a a gala of opening nights. In fact, they allowed him to collect a small tax and issue his own currency. And usually it was done in a spirit of fun. But Norton, for him, it was serious business. In fact, he expanded his authority to king of these United States and of Mexico. When he died in 1880, more than 10,000 curious people attended his funeral service one of the largest funerals ever to take place in California. He lived and he died under his own delusion of grandeur. He didn't hurt anyone. In fact, he brought a bit of a smile and chuckle to people who came across his path. But make no mistake, Joshua Norton was never really the king. But he sure believed he was. Who is our true king? Many have never fully realized how important this question is to answer. In fact, I would say this might be the most important question that you should answer this holiday season. Who is your true king? Now, when I say king, I mean who's in control? Who is sovereign over you? Who rules you? Who do you submit to for your life? Who's your Lord? Everyone needs to answer this question. Everyone here, every person on earth really needs to answer this question. Who is it? Who is your king? This morning, we come to the very end of our study in 2 Samuel. And and through this book, we we have learned much about God and how he has, how he has, his people responded to the authority that he's placed in their lives. And at the center of this book is a king, perhaps the greatest king in Israel's history, King David. And in this book, we've learned about repentance, we've learned about how power corrupts, how authority can be used for good and for bad, and how God deals justly with his people. And now we come to the end, and we come full circle to see how God is still sovereign. He's, and he will deal with the sin in his children's lives, and it must be dealt with. But the question still remains, who is your king? So if you haven't already, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 24. You'll be helped to have a Bible open. If you don't have one, there's some there in front of you in the chairs. If you don't own a Bible at all, we encourage you to take that as a gift. This will help you. We're on page 258 in the Bibles there that are provided. 
And if you're new looking at a Bible, the, the large numbers on the Bible are the chapter numbers and the small numbers are the verse numbers. It'll help you as we follow through this, this uh, sermon this morning. But we're going to look at all of 2 Samuel 24 and close out this book, Lord willing, here this morning. But here's the main idea. Here's the main thrust of the sermon. should be on the screen behind me. David's census reveals that God's people are still searching for their true king. David's census, as we will see, reveals that God's people are still searching for their true king. And there's four points as we'll walk through this passage. God's sovereignty, David's census, sin's consequences, and Israel's atonement. So if that helps you to take an outline, we'll walk through that. But before we do, we're going to read, I'm going to read the whole thing. Chapter 24, verses 1 through the end, through 25. So follow with me in your Bibles as I read. Verse 1, again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited, he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and number the peoples, that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my Lord the king still see it. But why does my Lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan, began from Arrow, from, and from the city that is in the middle of the valley toward Gad and on Jazar, and they came to Gilead and to Kadesh in the land of the Hittites, and they came to Dan, and from Dan they went around to Sidon and, and came to the fortress of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hittites and Canaanites, and they went out to Negab of Judah at Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the, nine, the end of nine months and 12, 20 days. And Joab gave the sum of the number of the people to the, to the king. In Israel, there was 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. Verse 10, but David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide one answer. I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time, and there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it is enough, now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arona, the Jebusite. And the Lord spoke to the Lord. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what, the, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up. Raise an altar to the Lord in the threshing floor of Arona, the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word, and the Lord commanded. And when Arona looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming to him. And Arona went out and paid homage to the king with his ground to the, face to the ground. 
And Arona said, why has my lord the king come to his servant? David said, to buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Arona said to David, let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes of the auction, oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Arona gives to the king. And Arona said to the king, may the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Arona, no, I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord, my God, that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was adverted from Israel. So first we're going to look at God's sovereignty. What, what is the first thought that comes into your mind when I say God is in control? For many of, of you here, it might bring comfort to you. For, for those that struggle with common fears and even deep-seated tears that, that afflict you, hearing that God is in control can bring peace. It's a relief to many that, that are suffering that, that God is in control. And yet when others are seated here, some hear that word, God is in control, and they, they begin to get angry. A person who has had much suffering in their life and affliction might not find comfort in those words and would struggle with the doctrine of God's sovereignty. When we talk about God's sovereignty, we're, we're defining that as God's lordship overall. To be sovereign means to rule as the final authority as king and to have control over all things. To be sovereign means you don't answer to others for what you do. We, we learn right at the beginning of the book of Job that God is truly sovereign over all creation, heaven and earth. And the author of Job points out to us, Satan comes and questions God about his servant Job and that he only worships God because his life is, is going really well. You remember the beginning of Job? And, and that God has put a hedge around him. And as you read, you understand that God sees fit to allow Satan to strike Job and his children and his possessions. But as you read Job, and you will this upcoming year, because Pastor Chris will be in the book of Job, in three sermons, mind you. So if you thought chapter 24 was long, are you going to read it all in one sitting? No. You're going to get a taste of this. I think it's going to be really helpful to us. But in that, at the end here, and I hope I'm not stealing, they'll forget by the time it comes, Chris. That's right. Job 121, this is Job's response after the Satan comes to him. When the dust is settled, he says, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. That's Job's response. Satan is the one that came, asked, and he went to afflict. But Job says, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Job saw this as God taking his children away. And the author of Job doesn't see a problem with that. Job sees God as sovereign even if he doesn't understand why. And what we learn from that difficult passage and others is that God and Satan intend the same suffering for entirely different purposes. But we learn that God's purpose will always triumph. Satan sought Job's ruin and eventually his loss of faith in God, but God sought Job's refining and faith building. The very thing Satan intended for Job's downfall God intended for his good and for God's glory. God is, is sovereign 
even over the activities of the great oppressor, Satan. He is Lord. He is sovereign. And, and there, there's a reason why I'm mentioning all this as we come to our passage of 2 Samuel 24. It's likely when we come to this passage, Satan is used by God in a similar way to test David and to bring judgment on the people of Israel. And how do we know this? Well, we need to turn to 1 Chronicles 21. So turn over in your Bible, 1 Chronicles chapter 21. You can turn. I'm going to read it regardless if you turn. This passage here in 1 Chronicles 21 is, is the companion passage to 2 Samuel 24. It says in verse 1, just one verse, Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. Satan is listed as the one who incited David to do the census. I just had you one read one verse. Come back to 2 Samuel 24 now. Remember, as I read verse 1, again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he, God, incited David against them, saying, go, number Israel and Judah. First Chronicles says that Satan incited David to take a census. Second Samuel says that the Lord incited David to take the census. These two passages don't contradict themselves. Both are true. Only in one of them, the incitement is traced back to God as the decisive initiator without mentioning his intervention in specifics. What we learn from comparing these two is that God is sovereign even over Satan. It was God's will. He chose this. Second, First Chronicles gives us what happened and how it happened, but ultimately God is behind this. God chose this. But why would God instigate an act that must be later be punished? Well, I don't have all those answers. We do not know the ways of God. But we see God's sovereignty all throughout the Bible. We see the hardening of Pharaoh's heart done by God. We see the suffering in Job's life. And David, here in 2 Samuel 24, like Job, must play his role in a theological drama that has much larger than he. David is really not unlike Job, for there was an instigation beyond his control or even knowledge. David, like Job, wasn't there at the beginning. God is far and above his creation and his sovereignty, his rule is sometimes beyond our understanding. Have you fully realized, do you understand that God's ways are not our ways? His thoughts are not our thoughts. I wonder if too many of us have come to the conclusion that God is only slightly stronger than us, only slightly smarter than us, that he's just, just a step ahead of us. Has that been the conclusion that you've had of God as of late? Have you convinced yourself that, that God is just, just like us, really? Just maybe a little farther down the road, a little more mature than we are. Friends, God is not. God is wholly different than us. And he created every part of us. He made this earth, he made seasons, 
not to mention the galaxies and billions of stars, and he made all of that with a single word. Have any of you been able to create anything with your words? I've tried as a parent, it doesn't always work. But God can. God is altogether different than us. And God has reasons for every restriction, every law, every wise bit of counsel. And just because we fail to understand it all doesn't mean that they don't exist and aren't necessary. God is sovereign. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God cannot be tamed. He cannot be brought down to our level. And he doesn't owe us explanations that we demand. God is far above and sovereign over all. And God always knows what's best for us. Charles Spurgeon said, if you could have chosen your own circumstances and condition in life, you could not have made so wise a choice as God made for you. God knows what he's doing, friends. And I think we probably need to grow in humility when it comes to our knowledge of God and our view of him and our submission to him, ultimately. If we only obey God when it makes sense to us, then we have no business calling him our Lord because he is merely an advisor for us. When we call God our Lord and Master, that means we are seeking to submit everything in our lives to him, even the things that don't make sense to us. We submit it to him and seek to glorify him in that. Perhaps we need to remember Paul's charge to the Roman church in chapter 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present yourselves your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Maybe that'd be the call of our life, presenting ourselves to God as his living sacrifice. And when we do that, it weakens the, the reflex to question his work in our lives, to question his sovereignty. And it grows in us our dependence upon him in all things. So first we've seen God's sovereignty. Next we see David's census. So David followed through, as we read, and, and orders the census. Now, taking a census in the Bible wasn't wrong. In Exodus 30 provides the procedure of how to do a census. Moses himself counted the men in Numbers chapter 1. In fact, the book of Numbers is, is all about, the whole book, counting a census, taking a number. So it's not sinful itself. So what was David's sin here? It couldn't have been the census, the actual taking of the census, what was his sin? And I would say it was a misplaced confidence. Look, look back at verse 3. Joab is on the scene. Now, it's always scary when Joab's the smart one giving good advice. But he does here. Joab said to the king in verse 3, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my Lord the king still see it. But why, why does my Lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. David, his desire to number the people was because he delighted to know how many soldiers he had. That was the census, really. It isn't as specific in 2 Samuel. It is more specific in 1 Chronicles. But they wanted to number valiant men. It says it at the very end, but the warriors. He wants to know how many warriors do I have? 
And it wasn't, he didn't take the census out of the desire to serve the nations. I believe it was out of the, the, the delight to, uh, to, to understand the size of his army. How big of army do I have? The, the census meant this, this hidden attitude was welling up inside of David, and, and, and God in his sovereignty brings it out so everyone can see. It was already there. God already knew what was in David's heart. But when he goes and orders the census, now everyone sees. Joab even sees what his desire was. David's desire to number the men who were fighting seemed to be his way to to bolster his understanding of his human kingness and his self-reliance in the army. It's also noteworthy if you go back in the First Chronicles passage, and I would encourage you to read that this afternoon. It would be helpful. Um, the, The census is mentioned right after a series of military victories that had brought peace to the nation. I think that's insightful as the author lists out all these victories and then David says, well, let me count the army now. It's not a coincidence. Joab saw this census as a way for David to delight in how mighty his army was and by extension how mighty he was. Matthew Henry in his commentary summarized it as well. He said, it was proud confidence in his own strength. By publishing among the nations the number of his people, he thought to appear the more formidable and doubted not that if he should have any war, he should overpower his enemies with the multitude of his forces, trusting in an arm of flesh more than he should have done, who had written so much of trusting in God alone. It seems as though God knew that David was beginning to trust in himself, and so he allows Satan to tempt him to take a census. That would draw out this sinful thinking that was just brooding under the surface. It was a selfish way of, of showing the world just how powerful David thought himself to be. And he was forgetting God and the power that God had shown him. He was forgetting that God was the one who placed him as king. He was counting his men, counting on his wealth as a nation. He was putting his confidence in earthly things in case any earthly enemy came knocking David wanted to know, can I defeat them? Do you see the subtlety of what's happening here in David's life? If he knows the number of men that he has to go to war, then when war comes, he doesn't have to go to the Lord. He can just say, well, I've got A and B, and, I'll, and then therefore I'll win, so let's just go. So in the subtlety, he's just moving farther and farther away from God. Ultimately, David was full of pride here. The number of his mighty men was a source of his power. Friends, pride is a dangerous thing for us. Pride hides God from us. Pride is the root of all sin. Pride pushes aside the truth that everything we have is ultimately from God. Pride smears and blots out the goodness and graciousness of our God. Pride blinds us to our own sin. Pride makes us bigger than we really are. David Wells said, the essence of pride is finding in self what can only be found in God. Friends, have you noticed how your dissatisfactions are related to your pride? Pride is the root of misery 
in our discontented rat race of a world that keeps pushing us to get more, to be bigger, to be better. So how can you grow in your satisfactions in life and in church and in your job and in your family and marriage and in your kids? How are you to grow with more humble contentment? It's by attacking your pride. See, Satan is just using your pride to make God look bad. Satan is tempting us too. Our flesh is inciting us, and we are choosing to sin. No one makes you. And we learn from the Bible that God is still sovereign over it all. He allows us to pursue sin, not because he delights in it in any way, but because it'll, it'll draw out our hearts, and hopefully that we would see ourselves and that we would seek to kill the pride that still lingers in our hearts. And friend, we learn from this that we need to destroy our pride. If you want to kill pride and you want to fuel contentment in your life, you need to study and learn God's Word. It it comes from understanding the Bible. See, Satan incited David to sin, so what should have David done? David should have turned to God Turn to, to Gad, the seer that we'll see later, and ask God for help through prayer. And he would have answered. We learn from James chapter 4, 7, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Turning to God, submit yourself to him, and Satan will flee. But to David, the idea of a census, initially to his flesh, this looked really good. I've won all these battles. Uh, look at me. I'm now this king, this mighty king that was going to happen. And, and now I get to have this, this security of knowing that no one can come after me. A census would be this ego boost. And David really didn't want God's insight. He wanted to listen to Satan's voice. And by failure to employ the means of grace that God had provided, he fulfilled what was incited by Satan, and he does the census, and in so doing, he rejects God. But the census would be dealt with. That's the third point, sin's consequences. The judgment that we read earlier was pronounced on Israel for David's sin. It doesn't exonerate the nation. The judgment comes to the nation of Israel because David had led the nation of Israel to sin. From that we learn that we suffer for the sin of others. We are constantly, do you recognize that? Suffering for the sins of others. We've seen it in our own nation, haven't we? The Bible often regards foolish or wicked leaders as a sign of God's judgment on a nation. The sin of its leaders has a way of filtering down to the followers, and soon it becomes, as a whole, rotten. In the Old Testament, we see God bringing judgment to a society, and when he does it, it's because that society has become violent and depraved. Like Sodom and Gomorrah and Nineveh, God will judge, the, God will judge those who have turned against him, who have found their hope in someone else. And, and God doesn't delight in pouring out his wrath. No, he's slow to anger, he says. So how does this connect to the, to the people of Israel here? Well, as we've looked at briefly, the census was primarily oriented towards the military. Israel was becoming a nation like its neighbors and would eventually only dominate and conquer others. If it was unchecked by God, they would become a nation just like every other nation. 
But that wasn't God's plan for his people. And so he steps in and he judges them. And God gives the punishment. In fact, he gives it to David to choose as leader. Verse 13, as we read, God, so Gad came to David and told him and said to him, shall three years of famine come to you in your land or, you, or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days of pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. David has to choose the punishment for his people. Three years of famine, three months of enemy attack, or three days of a plague. And David chooses the three days of a plague, the shortest punishment. David really is choosing the character of God here. He's counting on the hope of God's relenting in the midst of judgment. David was hoping in the mercy of God. In a sense, though, this judgment is really an act of God's mercy on his people. God would have been justified to wipe out his completely for the sin. He would be justified to do the same for us, but he doesn't. We are a crooked and rebellious bunch of people who continually spurn the goodness of God, and yet God shows mercy. You see, friends, if we're to understand the depth and breadth of our depravity, what will surprise us is not God's judgment, but God's mercy, that he would show mercy at all to us. See, if we're against the idea of God's wrath, it may be because we feel in ourselves that we're not guilty, that we really don't deserve it. See, the more we're convinced of our own manufactured righteousness, the more God's wrath is just, is just gross to us because we think I'm good enough. However, the more we see ourselves as guilty in our sins, the more His grace and His mercy become beautiful and amazing. Well, David sees the judgment happening. David sees the angel striking down the people, and he's broken. He cannot bear to see it. He really is a leader. He offers himself. Did you see that in verse 17 that we read? He says, behold, I have sinned. I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. Eventually, we see God relents the judgment. But this prayer, this this. This asking of God hangs over the house of David, and it waits for an answer. This prayer that David has hangs in history from that moment all the way forward. It's significant. These are, these are just sheep, he says. Essentially, I'm the shepherd. Let your hand fall on me, the shepherd, and not the sheep. And a thousand years later, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. David, in in this unbeknownst to himself, is pointing. He's pointing forward. He's throwing the pass for you football fans from 2 Samuel 24. And it's caught in John 10 with Jesus recognizing, I am the shepherd, the good shepherd. And he says, 
He, he says, I am your king, I'm the son of David, let your hand of judgment fall on me. Death is falling on God's people and Jesus steps in and cries to the Father and asks for judgment to fall on him and God answers his prayer. And the hand of judgment does fall on Jesus. It fell on David's offspring at Golgotha, near Mount Moriah, as we see, near the threshing floor of Verona, near the temple of Solomon. Jesus hangs on the cross. And just like when the father's hand of Abraham was raised over his son Isaac, God's hand was raised over Jesus. But this time, his hand is not withdrawn. There's no other alternative when Jesus hangs on the cross. There's no other substitute to come in and be sacrificed. Jesus was the sacrifice. Jesus was the sacrifice to which all other sacrifices in history have pointed to. He is the one who died in our place. And all of God's judgment for our sins fell on Jesus Christ on that day. Isaac was spared after a journey of three days. Jerusalem was spared after a plague of three days. And after three days, Jesus rose from the dead as a declaration that sin has now been defeated. Your judgment is gone. And because of Jesus Christ, your life is found in him and him alone. The good shepherd died for his sheep. Amen. And and David is just an example to showing us. But there's even more in this that I find very good and very helpful in David's words. Coming back to verse 17, the very beginning of it, you you catch what David says. He says, behold, I've sinned and I've done wickedly. Friend, this this is so important for us to understand as Christians. This is a mark of someone who's regenerated, who's made new. This is what it looks like to be a Christian to say this. It's not that we don't sin, but when we do sin, we repent of our sins and seek the forgiveness of God and from others that we sin against. And so parents that are seated here, and and you're desiring to raise your kids to love the Lord, to, to understand the Bible, and to repent, are you looking for salvation in your child? Perhaps you're looking for fruit to see if they they actually are a Christian. And you should be looking for regeneration. But it starts here. It starts in verse 17. Does your child grieve for their sin without help from dad and mom? On their own. They recognize it. They feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And they seek out forgiveness from God and seek out forgiveness from mom and dad and from others they've sinned against. It's not the only sign, but friends, it has to be the first sign that my child is actually regenerate, that they actually are converted, they're new, they're in Jesus Christ. It's, they have this, this issue with their sin. And if they don't, friends, then we dare not label them a Christian. See, David's confession of sin is a model, not only for our kids, but it's a model for us to follow. And if you're unsure, don't pressure your child. Keep sharing the gospel with them. It's not up to you to save them anyways, parents. Who does the saving? Should be an easy answer. Yeah, God does the saving. He's the one that regenerates your child. You don't. I believe one of the great mistakes we as parents make is labeling our kids as Christians simply because they prayed a prayer or went to camp or they went forward or raised their hands. Friends, raising your hand outwardly does not make you a Christian. 
Only God does the work of regeneration. And so parents, be patient and look for fruit of repentance. Look for other fruit of repentance, that their desire to pray, the desire to read God's Word. If they have no desire to read God's Word, we looked at it as, as evidence, right, as a Christian to want to understand God's Bible, the Bible that we have. As they look to serve and give energy and time, and they have conviction over sin, parents, that's what we should be looking for in our kids. And don't be disheartened. Again, it's not your job to save them. Just continue to pray and preach. Glory in the gospel of what God has done for you. And be careful not to put them into the family of God if God hasn't done it already. Really, David's confession for us is an example. It's a beautiful example of what it should look like in our lives. It's a beautiful example of what it should look like in your marriage of saying these to each other and your spouses. When was the last time you, you confessed your sin to God and to others? Friends, if you have to think long and hard about that, if it's been so long, maybe you need to reevaluate where you're at in your spiritual walk. This should be on a daily basis. It, it, it is, for me it is. Maybe I'm just a really horrible sinner, although I know I am. But it's a daily basis because I daily sin. How often do you repent of your sins? How are you doing it admitting and turning from your sins? See, I pray that we as a church would be humble people recognizing our sins by the Holy Spirit's help and and be quick to confess our sins to God first and to others who we sin against. And God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. So, those are the first three. Here's the last point, Israel's atonement. The last section is is atonement for sin, and how do you atone for your sin against God? Sin has to be dealt with. What do you do with your sin? Well, in our passage, David knows his sin. He recognizes his sin. He knows what must be done. Atonement must be made. Verse 21, Arona said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? David said, To buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people. The site, as we read, wasn't acquired by power. He wanted to give it to him. He wanted just to serve him. And David said, No, I'm going to purchase it legally and fairly. And the site would be the place to, to build an altar for the sacrifice of sin. David knew what must be, what must be done. He, his sin had brought the wrath of God and sacrifices must be done to satisfy God's wrath. And so the last verse of the book says, David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the main purpose was to atone for human sin by, by propitiating, by satisfying the wrath of God. And God responded to the plea for the land and the plague was adverted from Israel. See, God responds by removing the plague. God answers when sin has been paid for. What David did at the threshing floor of Arona was a historic importance. A number of years later, David's son Solomon would build the temple at this place where burnt offerings would be offered for the ongoing sins of Israel for a long time. If you remember all the way back in 1 Samuel, at the beginning of 1 Samuel, remember these two books are really one story. 1 Samuel begins with Elkanai and his family going to the temple at Shiloh. And why were they going to the temple? To offer sacrifices. And the corrupt priests were there. You remember them? The last chapter of 2 Samuel is King David offering sacrifices on the place where a future temple would be built. 
David would be a better leader than Haphi and, and Phinehas that we read in 1 Samuel, the sons of Eli. But David was still deeply flawed. And the book ends, really, with the promised king still fully unrealized. David was Israel's great hope, but he wasn't the king they needed. David was Israel's greatest king, but he was a great sinner, and he couldn't save his people from their sin. See, David in this passage wishes he could die for them here, but he can't. David's inaccuracy to save his people in any final sense from their enemies and wrath of God is clear in this book. And yet this book ends with these final scenes. It, it brings great anticipation of the son of David who would come thousands of years later. David wants to die, but he can't, and yet his seed would. And what we learn at the very end and we're reminded as we finish the book is that we need a better lawgiver who can both keep the law and fulfill the law and who will redeem us when we break the law. We need that. We need one who is able to build a glorious kingdom that can never be shaken. We need a, a shepherd who, is, who cares for the sheep and who will not abuse the sheep and neglect the sheep. And we need a priest that can give the final sacrifice that cleanses us from our sins. What we need is a king who is willing to leave his throne to die for his people to secure them for a place in his kingdom forever. You know, this year as Christmas comes, we gather as families to celebrate. We come to remember and rejoice in the one who came as the righteous king that God's people have longed for. A short distance from the threshing floor of Arona, the perfect and complete sacrifice for the sins of the whole world was made when Jesus died on the cross. See, from first to last in these two books, David's life is meant to point us to Jesus Christ. It all happened. It's all real, but it points us to Jesus. Now, there's a few different ways you might have listened to the sermon this morning. First, there are those of you here today who are growing in your walk with Jesus, and you rehearse the gospel regularly. You love joining with the gathering of the church on Sunday. You love to be fed by God's Word, and you're seeking to apply it to your life, and you joyfully, as best as you can, with the Holy Spirit's help, submit your life to the King. And I want to praise the Lord for you. Keep going. Keep following Jesus. And there's a second group, I think, of you who, who know that you've blown it. You know, this week or this month, you're, you're, you're kind of falling apart even in life. And here, here's what I mean. You, you know Jesus, you're trusting in Jesus, but in some ways in your life, you've tried to be king. You try to take over a little bit. You try to rule and reign over things. And, and really, at this point, you've made a mess of things. Any Christian here, if they're honest, can admit that they've been there too. But I want to remind you, there's a better king than yourself. Jesus who, who won't put extra burdens on your back and be that slave master. He's the one that can bring peace out of the mess in your life. And so I want to encourage you to run to him this morning, to submit your life to him in its fullness. And yet there's a third group, I think. You are your own king, and you're happy with that arrangement. Life seems to be floating along just fine, and you feel like everything's good, no big issues. I mean, at least you tell yourself you're happy. And ultimately, you're just like Joshua Norton that we heard at the beginning. 
strutting around the city like you own the joint, calling yourself internally, I I am king. I am in charge. You've made yourself king over your life, and you're good with that. But deep down, if you're honest, if you spend time reflecting, you know there is a problem. You just don't know what to do about it, and you might not want to do anything about it. And you know who's on the throne. It's you. And in your pride, some of you want to stay on the throne of your life until the day you die. And you think, I don't need God. You have you. Everything's fine. But you need to listen, friends. Your rightful king and his tender patience will not always be there. There will come a day when this king will return as judge And on that day, any notion of indifference from this king towards your rebellion will evaporate like our breath on a cold day. The Bible says that on that day, men and women will try to hide in the mountains, and the mountains will flee before the coming of the Lord. Think about that. How terrifying is that picture? The mountains will move because of King Jesus. You know the mountains. We live in the most beautiful area in the United States. We see a mountain on clear days. Mount Rainier is going to get up and move because Jesus is coming. I'm not making this up, friends. And you think that you can stand there proud, full of yourself, and somehow Jesus and his coming will somehow cower to you, it's not going to happen. And I warn you this morning because I love you, you need to repent. You need to humble yourself, and you need to believe in Jesus Christ. There are a lot of people shaking their heads because they know what it means to follow Jesus. So if you have questions, just look at those and they'll tell you. They'll give testimony of what God has done in their life. It doesn't mean life automatically becomes easy. But it gives you hope beyond this life. And that's why we shake our heads with a smile on our face because we know, we know what it means to live in obedience to God and his word and we find joy in that. And so friends, I I encourage you, I implore you to repent of your sin, of trusting in yourself and to trust in Jesus Christ this morning. Christmas is in a week, seven days from today. Christmas is one of my favorite holidays because you can see and hear the gospel so clearly of those that are involved in that morning when the king was born. On Christmas, the angels did not sing, here is how you can work so that you can reach heaven. That's not good news. No one would want to sing about that. They didn't say, now unto you is given this day a course in how to be a good person. They didn't say that. No, they, they sang of the coming king that came to rescue us. 
Come, thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. Come, thou promised rod of Jesse, of thy birth we long to hear. Born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king, born to reign in us forever, now thy gracious kingdom bring. They sing of what Jesus has done for us. We sing of this king because we know we need him. And he will come to make all things right. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we long to sing and to proclaim the good news of Jesus and his coming to earth to save us from our sins. Father, we thank you for Christmas. We thank you for this holiday in your providence, a holiday celebrated throughout the world that we as Christians get to talk about you. What glorious providence you've given us. But even as Christmas comes, some of us recognize that we need your presence more because we've made a mess of our lives. And the answer is that we come under your kingship of Jesus. We, we know this because we read that you are the one who holds everything together. For many of us here who think that obedience is the only way to heaven, may they see clearly in your scriptures that it's only through the obedience of Jesus Christ that they can be saved. And through Christ, we are qualified to receive the inheritance to be sons and daughters of the King. It's only because Jesus took our unworthiness upon himself that now we can become worthy. We thank you, Jesus. And Father, help us to live lives that please you, reminding of ourselves of the love that we have for our King. We thank you that we can celebrate you and what you've done for us. And we pray that you would be honored and glorified in our lives as we leave this place today. For we ask this all in Jesus' name, amen.